0: Well, please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God, and open your Bibles if you would, to Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is our scripture reading for this morning. Psalm 27, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life, whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this I shall be confident." One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired... Unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Pray with me this morning. Our Father in heaven, we are indeed so grateful that you are our God that from the foundation of the world you set your love and affection upon us and you chose us by your grace to redeem us through the life, the death, and the resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we delight in the fact that we are owned by you, that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to you, and we are in fact slaves of Christ We have been bought by his precious blood. We have been redeemed from all of our sins. And as you're redeemed, we are also pilgrims in a foreign land. We are traveling to the celestial city as it were. And even as we gather on this Lord's day, we anticipate the fullness of our salvation and your kingdom being established in the world and for our bodies to be glorified. And Father, as your people, as your pilgrims, we also recognize that we face opposition in this world that we are living in a world that is controlled by Satan, it is under his domain, it is an evil world system in which we live, and there is tremendous opposition and warfare against you and against your people and against your truth, and as we continue to represent you in the world and speak forth the gospel of Christ, we understand the opposition that is coming against us, and the enemies that will rise against us because of their hatred for you. But, Father, in the midst of that growing opposition, even in our own culture, may we be able to say with David that the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life, whom shall I dread that when evildoers come against us, even if there is war arising against us, that we will not fear, but we will be confident in you, in your sovereignty, in your power, in your purposes, and in your goodness. And Father, we also, along with David, we do not have cause for despair because we know that even in this fallen world, even though this world is not our home, and even though we experience opposition and suffering here, we have the assurance that we will experience your goodness in the land of the living. And therefore, we wait upon you. We find our strength in you, our hearts take courage in you, and we wait for you. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the fact that there are people all over the world that are gathering today to worship you, to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the living hope that we have because of him. May you bless your people. May you bless our gathering here this morning. May you be pleased to take your word and to use it to transform us. That we would not only learn truth in our minds, but we would be impacted in terms of how we live in light of the truth. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your presence among us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your steadfast love and your compassion. It is to you that we run to. It is to you that we offer all of our worship and all of our praise. For you are infinitely worthy of all worship and all honor. And we pray this in the name of Christ, your Son. Amen. Well, it is a wonderful joy to sing praise to our God, and it is a wonderful joy to open His Word together. And so I invite you to once again open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We are looking once again at verses 1 through 5 and continuing our series on the divine mandate for expository preaching, part 5. Our focus of attention is going to be verse 5 this morning. Let me read in your hearing verses 1 through 5 to set our text in your minds as we begin the exposition of the word of God. The Apostle Paul writes, I solemnly charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This week I had the opportunity to listen to a couple of messages by John MacArthur entitled, The Consequences of Non-Expositional Preaching. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but it's critical to understand what happens when a pastor does not preach expositionally. In those two messages, MacArthur gives 15 consequences for failing to preach expositionally, which I found personally very helpful And I would like to share with you this morning. In fact, if you will take one of the little bulletin inserts, all 15 consequences are listed there for you, and that will help you to follow along as we go through these together. Number one, failure to preach expositionally usurps the authority of God over the mind and soul of the hearer. God has total authority over your life, God's truth is sovereign, not the ideas of the preacher. And the only way to establish the authority of God over your life is through his word. And so if the word of God is not explained, then in effect God is silenced in the church and his authority over your life is usurped. Number two. Failure to preach expositionally usurps the lordship of Christ over his church. Christ is the head over his church, and the only way he can exercise his headship over his church is to be heard by the church. And the way Christ speaks to his church is through his word. And so if the word of God is not expounded by the preacher, then it usurps the lordship of Christ over his church. Number three, failure to preach expositionally hinders the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does his work of salvation and sanctification through the word of God, and therefore if the word of God is not proclaimed by the preacher, that hinders the work of the Holy Spirit. Number four, Failure to preach expositionally manifests a lack of submission to Scripture. God's command in Scripture to the preacher is to preach the Word, and therefore if the preacher does not preach the Word, he is exhibiting a lack of submission to Scripture. Number five, failure to preach expositionally severs the preacher personally from the sanctifying grace of Scripture. The word of God, as you know, is a tremendous means of grace. It is what sanctifies all Christians, including the preacher. But if the preacher does not preach the word, if he is not giving himself to the study and the proclamation of the word of God, he not only starves his congregation, he starves his own soul from the sanctifying grace which Scripture gives. Number six, Failure to preach expositionally removes spiritual depth and transcendence from the souls of people. In other words, it has a profoundly negative impact upon worship. It cripples worship because the worship of God is predicated upon the knowledge of the truth. Spiritual depth in the truth is essential for worship. You have to go down deep in the truth if you are going to rise up in transcendent worship. The height of your worship is in direct proportion to the depth of your knowledge and understanding of the word of God. Shallow understanding of the Bible leads to shallow worship And deep knowledge and understanding of the Word of God leads to deep and transcendent worship. Number seven, failure to preach expositionally prevents the preacher from fully speaking for Christ whom he serves. The mind of Christ and the will of Christ are revealed in the Word of God, which cannot be known if the preacher does not preach the Word. Number eight, failure to preach expositionally depreciates, by example, the spiritual duty and benefit of studying Scripture. If the pastor doesn't give himself to in-depth study of the Word of God, he provides a very poor example to the church. If the pastor doesn't study the Bible, people in the congregation will ask, why should I study the Bible? If Bible study isn't valuable to the preacher, why then should it be valuable to me? If the Bible is not the consuming passion of the pulpit, why should it be the consuming passion of the pew? For the preacher then to not study the word of God with depth sends the message that the Bible doesn't really matter. It communicates to the hearers that there are other things that are more important, that are more compelling than the word of God. Number nine, failure to preach expositionally breeds a congregation weak and indifferent to the glory of God. If the preacher doesn't preach the word of God, it will produce spiritual weakness in the congregation. It will produce indifference in the congregation to the content of Scripture. The people's minds and the people's affections will not be directed to the glory of God. They will not be directed to loving Christ Instead, their minds and their affections will be redirected to finding their happiness in far lesser things. Number ten, failure to preach expositionally robs people of their only true source of help. I ask you, where does your help come from? The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. What help is there apart from the Lord? There isn't any help apart from the Lord. What help is there apart from understanding the character of God, from understanding the promises of God, the covenants of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the care of God, the compassion of God? There is no help apart from these things. Therefore, to not preach the word robs people of their only true source, of help. Number eleven, failure to preach expositionally creates a destructive disconnect between sound doctrine and life. Contrary to popular opinion, sound doctrine is imminently practical. It is not merely theoretical, it is not merely some rational pursuit that is to be done in the classroom, it is imminently practical. No Christian can properly live the Christian life without sound doctrine and theology. Why? Because life imitates theology. That is such a vital principle. Life imitates theology. What you know to be true is what fashions how you live. You live your beliefs. The proper order for the Christian life, then, is to first apprehend the truth of God as revealed in His Word, and then to live out the implications of that truth in your life. So, if one's understanding of the Scripture is weak and shallow and confused, then that person's Christian life is also going to be weak and shallow and confused. Number 12. Failure to preach expositionally dishonors God by omitting those truths that trouble, offend, and terrify sinners. It is true that the Bible contains many difficult teachings, many terrifying teachings, many hard things to hear such as the reality of sin and the reality of hell, But because God has revealed these truths to us in his word, they must be preached. They must be preached. Failure to preach these truths with the goal of not offending the sinner, not offending people, is to actually bring harm to people, and it is to dishonor God. To preach all of the word of God, including the hard truths, or to not preach all of the truths of God's word, listen, is to in effect gag God. We don't want to be guilty of gagging God, limiting the voice of God by not preaching the hard and terrifying truths of his word. The preacher is to preach the whole counsel of God, and expositional preaching will force the preacher to do that very thing. Number 13, Failure to preach expositionally disconnects people from the legacy of the past. In other words, when the preacher is committed to Bible exposition, he will utilize study tools that will help him in his Bible study, such as commentaries. And when the preacher develops an interest in reading commentaries, he will soon realize that some of the best commentaries were written by a bunch of dead guys. And as he reads a bunch of dead guys from the past, he is then connected to the faithful legacy of preachers from the past, like John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, J.C. Ryle, just to name a few. Number 14, failure to preach expositionally removes protection from error that is deadly to the church. How are sheep going to be protected from the wolves? You tell me, how is that going to happen? Certainly not from ignorance of the Scripture, certainly not from misunderstanding the Scripture, but by understanding the Scripture. So for the preacher to not preach the Word of God is to leave the people of God vulnerable to the devil and to his devices and to his plethora of errors. And now number 15, the last on the list. Failure to preach expositionally deceives people. That they have heard from God when they haven't. That is a very powerful point. It is important for people to hear from God. We need to hear from God, but how does God speak to us? Through His Word. Hearing God speak through his word gives us the firm assurance that what we are hearing is in fact the very voice of God and not the voice of man or something else. Well, as you can see, there is much at stake, beloved, when it comes to preaching the word. As we have been learning in the last month or so, Preaching the word of God is to have the central and primary place in the church. It is the first mark of a healthy church. God's calling to the preacher is crystal clear. He is to preach the word without compromise. The divine mandate upon every preacher is the mandate for expository preaching. And that mandate is revealed by God most clearly. Here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now as we return once again to this great portion of the Word of God, let me remind you that 2 Timothy 4 is the grand climax of Paul's final New Testament epistle. As Paul is on the brink of entering into the very presence of Jesus Christ in heaven, the most important things pertaining to pastoral ministry rise to his mind, and he conveys them powerfully To Timothy in the form of a charge. In this passage, Paul is giving Timothy and every other preacher principles for faithful preaching. These are listed for you in your bulletin. You can look at that if you would. We have the first principle, Roman numeral one, the solemnity of preaching, that is in verse one. The second principle is the biblical content of preaching, that is in verse two. The third principle is the opposition to preaching, that is in verses 3 and 4, we saw that last time, and then the fourth principle for faithful preaching is Roman numeral 4, the endurance of preaching, and that is found in verse 5. Now everything in this passage revolves around the command in verse 2 to preach the word, That is the very heart and soul of Paul's charge to Timothy. And everything that Paul says in verses 1 through 5, in one way or another, relates to that command to preach the word. With that said, as we come to verse 5, we come to the conclusion of the content of Paul's charge to Timothy. And in this conclusion, Paul gives a series of four commands which come in rapid-fire succession. And while they address a variety of ministerial responsibilities, the idea of endurance is what ties them all together. That is why I have outlined this point, the endurance of preaching. These are great responsibilities that every faithful preacher of the word of God bears upon his shoulders. But as we will see, they have a wider application for all of the people of God. So let's begin to look at these one at a time, beginning with the first one, letter A, the responsibility to clear-mindedness. You will notice that Paul begins, verse 5, with an emphatic, personal, direct appeal To Timothy, but you. This is a strong contrast to what Paul wrote in verses 3 and 4 concerning those who will not endure sound doctrine. This is the third time Paul appeals to Timothy like this, and in each case, it is set in strong contrast to apostasy and false teaching. If you'll look back to chapter 3... And going through verses 1 through 9, you will remember that Paul describes the character of apostates and false teachers. But then in verse 10, he says, now you, literally but you. That is a very personal, emphatic, direct appeal to Timothy. Timothy, this is what the apostates and the false teachers are like in verses 1 through 9. But you, now in verse 10, are to be nothing like them. In chapter 3, verse 13, Paul again describes the character of apostates and false teachers. But in verse 14, he says, you, literally, but you. Again, Timothy, this is what the character of apostates and false teachers is like. This is what they do, and you are to be nothing like them. And then once again, in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul describes the character of apostates, and then by way of contrast in verse 5, he says for the third time, but you. A direct, emphatic, personal appeal to Timothy. But you. Timothy, the harsh reality, is that within the visible church, there are going to be, as Paul describes in verses 3 and 4, Those who will not endure sound doctrine. Those who will want to have their ears tickled. Those who will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance, not with the word of God, not with the qualifications set out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. This is the harsh reality that Timothy faces in his ministry. This was the picture of false Christians within the visible church. And what they want, beloved, is to be led, listen, by false teachers. They do not want Paul to be their pastor. They do not want Timothy to be their pastor. They do not want faithful men who will exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict to be their leaders. They want men who will be false teachers to lead them and to teach them. In our day, there are entire churches that are just like verses 3 and 4. In fact, there are entire denominations, as we noted last time, that are just like Paul's description in verses 3 and 4. They are apostate. And this is part of why the times in which we live are so difficult. But in contrast to this apostasy, which seems to prevail at times. Paul commands Timothy, but you, Timothy, be sober in all things. There is the first command in verse 5. That is the first responsibility that he gives to him here in verse 5. Be sober in all things. Very interesting verb, be sober. It literally means to not become intoxicated. To not become drunk with alcohol. But it can also be used figuratively, and I believe that is how Paul is using it here, for being sober-minded. Sober-minded. One of the things that happens to a person when they become intoxicated is that they become what? Impaired. In their intoxicated condition, they are not able to perform basic things like driving a car or walking a straight line. They are not able to think clearly about anything in their drunken condition. And so what Paul is charging Timothy to do is to maintain a clear head in his ministry Timothy, you must not allow your thinking to become clouded by the evil influence of apostasy and false teachers. You must keep your mind sober. Why? So that you can clearly see the evils that are around you, that threaten you, and that threaten the church through apostasy and false teaching. Timothy, you must not be influenced by those who would seduce you away from the truth, those who are described in verses 3 and 4. Timothy, dare not allow the itching ears of people and the abandonment of the truth by certain people within the visible church to in any way blur what God has called him to do in his ministry, namely to preach the word. He must remain personally disciplined in fulfilling the divine mandate to preach the word. He must never compromise the truth under the pressure of opposition, no matter how great and how widespread that pressure may be. He must never abandon the faithful pattern set down by Paul for pastoral ministry, for that which is trendy and that which is popular and that which is cultural. So, Timothy, in all your duties, under all circumstances, be sober in all things. The implication of this for me as the preacher is to endure in preaching the word. And the implication for you of this is that you would endure in demanding and wanting the word of God and nothing but the word of God to be preached. Tremendous implications. A second responsibility that Timothy has is the responsibility to suffer for the cause of Christ and his truth. We find this in these two words, endure hardship. If you have been with us throughout our exposition of 2 Timothy, you know that there is a very Strong and heavy emphasis upon suffering in this book. Let me remind you of what Paul says about suffering in the life of the Christian. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 8. Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul is writing as a prisoner. This is his second imprisonment in Rome. He is on the brink of martyrdom, and he calls Timothy, he exhorts Timothy to suffer with him for the gospel. Suffer with me. Join with me in suffering. Chapter 2 and verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. Verse 10, I endure all things, Paul says, speaking further about his suffering. In chapter 3 and verse 10 through 12, Paul says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, Then in verse 11, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. And then in verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In light of these verses from one book in the New Testament, one very small book in the New Testament, it is amazing to me how many in the church today, especially in the charismatic movement, believe and even teach that suffering is not the will of God for the Christian. That is false teaching. To say that suffering is somehow not the will of God for the Christian, to say that suffering is somehow supposed to be beyond the life of the Christian. The truth of the matter, beloved, is that not only is suffering a part of every Christian's experience, there is a sense in which Christians will suffer more in this life than non-Christians because, in part, due to opposition and persecution. That is certainly the case for the faithful preacher like Paul and for the faithful preacher like Timothy. When the preacher preaches the word, you can guarantee that he will be opposed. That he will be opposed by those within the visible church. Verses 3 and 4. If you are looking for an easy life, do not preach the word. Because when you do, you will be like a lightning rod in a storm that will attract opposition. But when that happens, Paul says to Timothy, endure hardship. So vital. Timothy, remain strong in your preaching. Do not give into the pressure to alter your message in exchange for a comfortable ministry, in exchange for a comfortable Christian life. I want you to listen to something that Charles Spurgeon said. It is so tremendous. And I wanted to read more than what I've got here, but I'm going to kind of shorten it because it is so rich. Listen to what Spurgeon says about enduring hardship for the Christian. Remember how your fathers in times gone by defended God's truth and blush, you cowards, who are afraid to maintain it. Remember that our Bible is a blood-stained book The blood of martyrs is on the Bible, the blood of translators and confessors. The doctrines which we preach to you are doctrines that have been baptized in blood. Swords have been drawn to slay the confessors of them, and there is not a truth which has been sealed by them at the stake or the block or far away on the lofty mountains where they have been slain by hundreds. Be ye the pillar and ground of the truth. Let the blood of martyrs, let the voices of confessors speak to you. Remember how they held fast the truth, how they preserved it and handed it down to us from generation to generation. And by their noble example, I beseech you, be steadfast and faithful. Tread valiantly and firmly in their steps. Acquit yourselves like men, like men of God. I implore you. I mean, I can just imagine the energy with which Spurgeon said those words when he preached that in London. This book, beloved, is a book that has been bathed in the blood of God's people. The blood of faithful preachers, the blood of faithful missionaries, the blood of faithful Christians. All of the doctrines that are to be preached, that have been preached by the faithful minister, are doctrines that have been baptized in blood. And so when you preach this word, Timothy, expect opposition. And when it comes, endure it. Don't quit. Don't stop. Don't compromise. Don't flee. Don't become a coward. Endure hardship. And I find it very interesting that there is a little verse at the end of the book of Hebrews. I'd like you to turn with me for just a moment to Hebrews 13. Because this is a verse about Timothy that is often unrecognized. Hebrews 13 In verse 23, as the writer of Hebrews is bringing this book to an end, he makes a comment about Timothy. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released. With whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Now, what does verse 23 tell us about Timothy? He's been released. Released from where? From prison. And so after write, after paul writes second timothy and paul gives timothy all of these charges to endure hardship to join paul in suffering for the gospel apparently what timothy did was take heed to those charges and he suffered for the gospel to the extent that he was arrested and at some point according to hebrews 13:23 he is released And so Timothy was faithful in living out this responsibility to suffer for Christ and to suffer for the truth of the gospel. He was the kind of preacher who was willing to embrace hardship as part of what it meant to follow Christ and part of what it meant to preach the word. And, beloved, the same is true not just for preachers. It's true for all of God's people as we read in 2 Timothy 3.12 just a moment ago. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is a promise from God. If you've been watching the news, you no doubt have seen the story that in Iraq, that the Muslim terrorists are giving basically an ultimatum to the Christians who are living there to convert to Islam or die. Just imagine what it would be like to be in Iraq right now. There are cities in Iraq where Christians have lived for 2,000 years where there are no longer any Christians due to the persecution. Beloved, that's the kind of world that we live in. That is the reality of the Christian life this side of heaven. A third responsibility that Timothy has is the responsibility to advance the gospel, to advance the gospel. He says in verse 5, Do the work of an evangelist. There are certain people, according to the scripture, who are specially gifted by God to be evangelists. Philip was an evangelist. We read about him in the book of Acts. Ephesians 4.11 talks about different offices, different giftings that God gives to people in the church, one of which is evangelists. But whether or not God has specially gifted you for evangelism... Every Christian is responsible. Every Christian has the stewardship of advancing the gospel. Now, some have attempted to counter this idea by saying that the Great Commission was limited to the Apostles. That They were given that responsibility to advance the gospel and it was limited only to them because they were the audience that Jesus was speaking with there in Matthew 28 when he gave the Great Commission. But that understanding can't be the case because all of the apostles died in the first century which would mean the Great Commission would have come to an end at the end of the first century with the death of the apostles. That would also make the promise of Jesus in the Great Commission to be meaningless when he said, And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus promised to be with those who would fulfill the Great Commission, even to the end of the age, which obviously goes well beyond the apostolic age, which ended at the end of the first century A.D., So again, God has given the stewardship of evangelism to all of his people, not just the apostles and not just the leaders of the church, but to all of the members of the body of Christ. If you are a Christian, if you have been saved by the gospel, it is your responsibility in this world to promote and to advance the gospel. That is a responsibility that we all share in common. As Israel was to be a witness nation in the Old Testament, the church is to be a body of witnesses for Jesus Christ. But the question at this point in my mind is, if evangelism is the responsibility of every Christian, why then does Paul have to tell Timothy here to do the work of an evangelist? Sort of a curious command. Sort of a surprising thing maybe for Paul to say at this point. So why does he have to command Timothy to do the work of an evangelist? The answer, I believe, is this. Believe it or not, it can be difficult for pastors to do evangelism. Pastors are consumed with shepherding the flock. They are consumed with the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. They are consumed with preaching God's word to God's people and protecting God's people from the false teachers. They are consumed by these things. In fact, they can become so consumed by these responsibilities that are right and good, that are defined by God, that they can easily neglect the work of evangelism. What is more, pastors are usually surrounded by what kind of people? Christians, people who don't need to be evangelized. I mean, that is certainly understandable because their work is to shepherd the flock and therefore it is natural for them to be around sheep all the time. And so it is at this very point where the pastor must be very careful. He can make a mistake in being faithful to that command to preach the word to God's people. He can become so consumed with that that he neglects to do the work of an evangelist, which is something that he must avoid. To remedy this, the preacher must look for opportunities For evangelism in his life, he must be intentional about pursuing evangelizing lost people, such as people within his family, such as neighbors, such as the cashier at Walmart, such as people who go to Starbucks, and on and on and on it goes. I have to be very intentional about this. I have to be thoughtful about sharing the gospel with my relatives, with my neighbors, with people at Starbucks, with the lady that's checking me out at Walmart. That is what the pastor has to make sure that he does not neglect in his endeavor to preach the word to God's people. So this is my responsibility. This is your responsibility. And so I ask you this question, when was the last time? You shared the gospel with an unbeliever. If we're just going to be honest, when was it? Who are the lost people in your life that you are intentionally seeking to evangelize? Do you have relatives that you are attempting to evangelize? Do you have neighbors that you are intentionally pursuing in evangelism? How about at the restaurants or wherever you go? Is that a part of how you think and how you live as a Christian? What people has God put into your life that you need to share the gospel with? Every Christian, including pastors, should have what we might call evangelistic relationships. That is, relationships with lost people whereby we are pursuing to evangelize them. And oftentimes, it is a long-term endeavor, maybe years, maybe even decades of years. So here is a powerful thought. Wherever God has put you in your life, that is your mission field. That is your mission field. Your intent or God's intent for you to be there is to be a light for Christ, to be a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost world. Well, there is a fourth and final responsibility that Timothy has here in 2 Timothy 4-5. That is the responsibility to faithful service in the church. And so here we are taken from that responsibility at world evangelism, if you will, to back to life in the church. Paul says to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. God had specially gifted Timothy for pastoral ministry. Timothy served as a pastor at the church in Ephesus. God had given him that ministry, that it was a unique endowment by God, a unique privilege by God that he had given to Timothy. But the the burden of Paul's heart at this point was for Timothy to fulfill his ministry. Timothy was gifted by God to serve as a pastor, but he needed to make sure that he fulfilled his ministry. The idea that Paul is charging Timothy with here is to carry his ministry through to completion. To carry it through to completion. Timothy was to fully perform his ministry responsibilities In short, he was to endure, he was to be faithful in his service in the church among God's people. He was to complete his assignment, especially as it related to preaching the word of God. Leave nothing in the word of God unsaid, no sin unconfronted, no promise untold, no grace withheld, no truth untaught. Complete your ministry, Timothy. Well, not only is this true for Timothy and for pastors, but this idea of ministry within the church is true for all Christians. It's true for all of God's people. Just as God has called all of his people to... Involve themselves in evangelism, so too has God called all of his people to serve in the church. Ephesians 4 gives us the model for ministry in the church. It is an every member ministry model. It is not just certain ones who are doing all of the work and everybody else just simply receives and watches. It is an every member model whereby every single Christian has a part to play, a role to play in serving in the life of the local church. God has endowed every Christian with spiritual giftedness and the point of that spiritual giftedness is that you would use that giftedness to serve in the church. That You would serve in the church. And so I ask you at this point, what ministry has God given to you? How has God gifted you to serve? Are you being faithful as a steward of that gift to employ it In the church, are you fulfilling the ministry that God has given to you in the body of Christ? Certainly, it's not always easy to serve in the church, but all of us must be faithful to endure in whatever ministry God has called us to do, and as long as God gives us the ability to do that. And So what a responsibility, beloved, that God has given to you and to me here in 2 Timothy 4-5, to be clear-headed about the ministry of the word, to suffer for Christ, to advance his gospel, and to serve in his church. May God help us to be faithful in these responsibilities. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and how clear and how powerful it is Father, we have been reminded that we are to be clear-minded when it comes to the truth in an age where the truth is so undermined and so devalued and so replaced with false teaching. Lord, help us to be discerning, to not be seduced by the error that is so prevalent Help us to not fall into patterns of worldliness and how we think and how we live out Christian life and ministry. Father, may you give us boldness and courage to suffer for Christ, to endure hardship, to not be afraid to proclaim the name of Christ in public. Father, may you give us help to advance your gospel. We thank you for putting us where you have in life. We know that that is your sovereign purpose and that you have intentionally put lost people in our sphere of influence. And may you give us opportunities to share the gospel with them. May you give us hearts that are burdened by the souls of people and their spiritual condition as lost and condemned. And, Father, may you help us to fulfill the ministries you've given to us, that we would faithfully serve you and your people as long as you give us life and breath and the physical capacity to do so. Father, we thank you for the example that Paul was not only to Timothy but to us. And even the example that Timothy was to us as we read in Hebrews of his release from imprisonment. Father, as we think of these things, we are very grateful that life, as we know it, with all of this trouble, with all of this difficulty, with all of this suffering... That it is so brief, it is so temporary, and that there is an eternity that is coming wherein we will be forever delivered from these things. Father, until then, may you help us to strive to be faithful as your people, help us to endure. In all that you have called us to do. For the glory of your great name we pray. Amen.